Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks episode number 260. This week on our panel, we have James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Dave DeLong. Hello from near Salt Lake City. I'm Andrew Madsen, also in Salt Lake City, and we have a guest today. Our guest is Derek Sealander. Derek, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Derek from Boulder, Colorado. Um, been an iOS dev for more than a little while and uh, very into debugging. Uh, I know it's kind of masochistic, but um, so much so that I wrote a book about debugging and reverse engineering, uh, specifically focused on LLDB and happy to be here to talk about debugging strategies and reverse engineering. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I, I, I've actually read your book, uh, Derek, and I think it's really, really well done. And I don't say that about a lot of books. I think a lot of programming books are pretty poorly done, um, but yours is very well done. Awesome. Thank and, you so much. That makes me so happy. <laughs> but, but one of the things that I thought as I was reading this, your book is like, um, if I had decided to, to set out to write a book like this, uh, I wouldn't know where to start. Like the place to start is to buy your book and read it. Right. And, um, there's so much in it and it, you know, assembly language. Okay. I could figure that out. There's references on that, but there's, you know, all kinds of low level debugging stuff and, um, runtime things and all this, this LLDB commands that I didn't even know existed and flags for commands that I didn't know existed. And, um, I wonder how you, how you learned all this. Oh man. Uh, I think, well, what got me into it, uh, not totally answering your question, but what got me into this was um, a specific script and uh, that's, that's in all our computers. Uh, actually, I wrote it down because it's, um, this is the thing that, that turned me on to starting to learn all this stuff was. Uh, anyways, uh, it, it's, it's called uh, heap.py. It's a Python script uh, embedded in the uh, Xcode application. What the script does was it would enumerate all pointers in um, uh, found on the heap for a specific type of class and um, and using that um, and looking at the source it, it was it was kind of really blew me away um, and just kind of figuring out how all this stuff works with you know using Python to generate code uh, mock tasks which is um, kind of lower level I don't really talk about too much in the book but um, very powerful APIs for controlling stuff um, and just all this stuff together, that, that's what initially got me into it. And then kind of learning all this stuff was just a painful process of, oh man, I'm actually writing a book and you know, doing the research. And there's not a lot of good material out there unless you know where to look. So um, kind of just having the book just forced me to uh, research, reread, and reread again uh, until 
I was more or less happy with it. <laughs> now, I've always thought that the best approach for debugging is to not try to not write bugs in the first place. So why do we need a book at all? It's that fair, but uh, you know, I, I mean, the world isn't perfect, especially with code. And you know, even if we can write perfect code, we can't make that assumption on other people. So if you're in a large team, uh, you kind of do have to expect bugs across, you know, the repo, and there's there's no real way around that. And you know, okay, so that assumption of there are bugs in code, irregardless of what you can or cannot do. Uh, just learning how all this stuff works is hopefully interesting and insightful for future bugs you may come across. Okay, that makes sense. And to be clear, I haven't really pulled off the strategy very very well, but uh, it's good to try. I, I you know, I teach, um, and I tell my students sometimes that debugging is even if you even if you never wrote a bug in your life, even if you never shipped a bug in your life. Debugging is one of the most important skills you can have as a programmer. Uh, for me, debugging is beyond beyond being able to find and fix problems in my code. It is very helpful for being able to understand what my code is doing, to explore it as I write it, uh, and to do the same for code that other people wrote. Yeah, totally agree on that. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a very important skill to have, and even if your code is hopefully bug free, which you know, that's, it's hard to imagine unless it's like a really simple hello world. Um, you know, it's, it's important. It's an important knowledge to have. And a lot of senior developers will definitely, you know, agree in saying uh, debugging is a very, very useful skill. I don't know. I, I've screwed up hello world before, but um, uh, let's talk about like some basic high level about this. Oh, uh, I guess it depends on the problem. Um, if it's you know understanding code, or you know that, that's that's one path. If it's you know something's not working on the UI, that's another path. Um, it, it really depends on the problem. Is it you know always fun to debug exact bad access kind of bug? Um, you know it, it it really depends. I, I could do a deep dive on one of them or how I think I would tackle it, um, but. Um, you know, I feel like there's particular strategies for each kind of grouping of bugs that um, that arises in a code base. Okay, what what are the like, the level? What are those strategies? Uh, you know, okay, so picking one, I would I would always say um, for me, I if I have a coworker that comes to me and says, "Hey, there's a bug. Uh, can you take a look at it?" I will almost always turn uh, malloc stack logging on. This is um, an environment variable that will record all um, allocations of memory. And if you have a certain setting, all freeze in memory. And so uh, I always like to have that one on um, just in case, you know, like if I can reproduce it, then I don't have to restart the program to try and figure out what happened. And so what this, this environment variable does, uh, it, you know, I could see if there's like an exact bad access, I could look at that address and see, was this freed? Does it belong to the heap? Uh, you know, what was, um, where was it deallocated at and kind of go sniffing around in that code or in that area for code and see what was problematic for that. And, you know, and from there, I'll probably put breakpoints on, um, maybe watch points to, to, if I have a hunch, if it's like a, you know, deallocated view controller or something like that, I'll put, um, like a watch point on, which will monitor 
uh, reads or writes to that address and just, you know, kind of just go about figuring out, putting back the pieces from there. But okay. again, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if you're a developer trying to figure this stuff out, um, what tools are you using um, for some of these techniques? Uh, I use LLDB quite a bit. I do use Xcode, the GUI elements here and there, but um, I, I mainly stick to my, my LLDB scripts that I've written a number for. Um, and if, it, if the stuff is really crazy, like uh, I just have no clue where to start, I will actually use Dtrace, uh, also covered in the book, uh, which is a very powerful uh, tool that will execute code in the kernel for, you know, you could do a, a number of really cool things, but I, I mainly use it for kind of um, uh, tracing function functions across um, uh, the program and all that. So LLDB, Dtrace, Xcode GUI elements, uh, occasionally instruments, but that's, you know, a fancy wrapper for Dtrace stuff. Um, I'll use environment variables for debugging, malloc stack logging, uh, the thread sanitizer. Um, there's a lot of cool functionality kind of sort of hidden away in Xcode that maybe the beginner slash intermediate iOS developer might not know about. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the first people, first technique most people stumble upon while you know, debugging is just stepping through their ID. You know, for most of us, that's Xcode or doing a bunch of print statements everywhere if you're in Swift. Um, both are very <laughs> valid. Um, I, I used to think that print statements were, were bad. And I have gotten to the point where I know they're, they're great, and a lot of people use them, especially if you are used to using uh, developing with an IDE. Um, but as far as like digging down into LLDB, um, I don't do that a whole lot. I used to way back in, in, in the day when I did more embedded work, but uh, how do you do that? How do you uh, set up scripts? How do you run them? Uh, how does that work? Uh, yeah, so how LLDB works is there's a um, Python uh, kind of a module that LLDB exposes. And so from there, you can, um, you can access a number of things from the target to threads, to the process, to uh, source lines and code, to assembly instructions. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty well done. I, I, uh, I'm very happy with that. So from there, you can make your own Python scripts and you could actually execute code. Uh, and so most developers are probably used to, you know, PO some variable and you know that's just to me that's just a one line of code but uh these LLDB scripts that i have will generate hundreds of lines of code and it's just basically POing this huge file that um i'm kind of dynamically generating based upon uh memory and you know where where uh code is uh resident in memory okay so if you're trying to debug an ios app or a mac app um, how would you fire up LLDB uh Either two ways. I, I, I will use Xcode for a lot of um, debugging, uh, but sometimes I'll drop down to the terminal just because um, the terminal crashes less. Uh, and you know, I, my, my LLDB scripts will actually check if I'm in Xcode or not and use color uh, if I'm not in Xcode, which is kind of nice just for you know, looking at assembly or something like that. It's, uh, it's a lot easier on the eyes than just looking at something that's one consistent color. So, uh, and, and I, I do have a tool that will, um, you know, launch and debug uh, iOS apps, and you can debug them from the terminal, which is quite nice. Um, you know, 
it's uh, it's it's great for jailbreaking and just kind of understanding, you know, what's happening under the hood and very useful. So yeah, Xcode and Terminal are my go-tos. Do you use Hopper? I do. Uh, for the reverse engineering tools, uh, my list are uh, of tools are uh, Hopper, uh, JTool made by Jonathan Levin, the 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 person who wrote. Uh, Mac OS and iOS internals. It's it's a great uh, decompilation tool for ARM. Uh, for x86-64, um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of default to either Hopper or Otool, which is available on all our Macs. Uh, I think the the arguments of interest would be minus T capital V to disassemble uh, a program. And let's see what else. I also sometimes whip out IDA. Uh, which is a over-the-top expensive uh, GUI application that um, uh, it works quite well for reverse engineering uh, binaries. What about you? Do you use any of those tools? I want Dave to chime in. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I've actually had an occasion to use Hopper quite a bit recently. Um, I launched an app recently called Ejector, uh, which is to... Uh, use the eject key on your keyboards to present a window of mounted volumes and, and disks and eject them. And as I was writing this app, I wanted to make sure I was following standard system logic as closely as I could about choosing which volumes to show. Because when you just start looking at the raw volume information that the system exposes, there's tons of volumes there. There are volumes that show up for a time machine and translocated apps and weird system features and, and stuff. And um, I, I wanted to make sure that those didn't show up because uh, you don't see them in Finder, nor do you see them in Disk Utility. Um, so I actually spent quite a bit of time disassembling uh, Disk Utility and several frameworks to try and figure out what criteria they were following to when choosing which disks to show and, and to not show. Um, and I actually discovered some edge cases I hadn't even considered. Uh, so for example, um, disk utility does not let you unmount the volume that contains your home folder, uh, even if that's a separate volume from your boot volume. Um, it has a logic specifically to check that. And I discovered that just by tracing things uh, around in Hopper. It was, uh, it's great. And it's kind of weird that like you kind of almost develop this knack for reading assembly which is not something I ever thought I would, I would develop. That's awesome. So for reverse engineering, would you say, to me, I, I use it as a tool for learning, but would you say there's anything else to use it for? Like, do you, like, I know people will use it to replicate functionality, but would you say learning is your primary, like your, your pitch to learn reverse engineering? Um, my pitch for learning reverse engineering would be, you know, sometimes you're facing really bizarre bugs and you have no idea how you're even getting into this state. And it's nice to be able to look at UI kit itself or app kit itself and start figuring out how you got here. Um, uh, we often treat the system frameworks as a black box in how they work. Um, and with Hopper, they don't have to be a black box. They can be, you know, a still a fairly dark gray, um, but we can shed some light on the situation and use it to solve problems that we weren't uh, 
weren't able to solve before. Yeah, I, I use Hopper too, um, basically for some of the same reasons Dave does, uh, for learning and for exploring what system frameworks are doing. Um, I haven't found a lot of need uh, to use it for you know anything more practical than that. And I also, but I also feel like I don't know everything there is to know about Hopper. Uh, and as for Ida, which you also mentioned, it's like, I don't know, you could probably tell me, but it's like $5,000 or something for a license. <laughs> so until and unless I have something that's going to pay me that much, uh, I'm not going to be buying that. Yeah, I was forget which company first bought it for me, but yeah, I'll, that's how I got it. And then I could sort of talk myself into occasionally uh, getting the renewal thing every year. But yeah, that's so much money compared to free tools like uh, JTool and um, and Hopper, which is what, it's only like 60 bucks or something. I forget, I don't even remember it. Yeah, it, it, it's, I would definitely recommend almost every iOS dev get Hopper just because it's relatively cheap and you, you learn a lot. It's, it's a great tool to you know explore and poke around and see what people are doing and to me, reverse engineering, you learn the fastest just because you can see what other people have done without having the source code. So, so I have a, a question. Since you have both Hopper and Ida, um, what do you see as being like the sell for Ida? Like, what is it that justifies the, the expensive price tag on it? And what would... Uh, someone who's really serious about reverse engineering be looking for in order to consider purchasing it? Uh, I don't think I'd be the best person to answer, but I'll still give it a try is, um, uh, I think Hopper is more focused on Mach O. I could be wrong on that. While Ida is just, everything is fair game if you get the right tools. So, you know, Mach O for Mac, Elf for Linux and, you know, all the Windows, executables and all that. So I think it's, it's, um, you have more contributors to IDA. The disassembly in my opinion is better. Um, but you know, I, I haven't gone as far as to make, you know, attach a debugger via IDA nor hopper. So again, I'm probably not the best person, but just, just the disassembly and decompilation, uh, I think is a little better in IDA. That, that already sounds appealing. One of the uh, critiques I have of Hopper itself is that I feel there are times when it just uh, falls over on disassembling things uh, that it shouldn't. I also wish there were ways I could teach it about uh, certain Cocoa paradigms, like uh, how NSFast enumeration is implemented. Um, because when you come across a, the disassembly of uh, a, a for-in loop, um, it looks really nasty in in the disassembly, um, but uh, if you know that that's what you're dealing with, you can really make it terse when you're uh, decompiling. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah. I mean, you get what you pay for, but I, I think Hopper is just such a great tool, uh, even for the spots that it does kind of screw up on. It's I, I love that thing. It's it's just so much easier to use compared to Ida, at least on a Mac. So. I wanted. I, I did want to point out just because I think it's kind of cool and interesting that Hopper is actually also available for Linux, and um, and can and can uh, disassemble ELF binary, binaries on Linux. Oh, thanks. it's still okay. sort. Yeah, it's it, it's still sort of hop. It's, so he the way he builds for Linux is he's actually using GNU Step. So it's 
it's all one code base. It's still written in Objective C, at least as far as I know. Uh, we should probably try to get the, the the guy who does Hopper on the show. That'd be interesting. But um, he's definitely using GNU Step uh, to to ship the Linux version, and I think he's still more or less sort of focused around Objective C and C, and you know uh, that that is certainly a thing about Hopper. Is it's it's fairly narrowly targeted toward um, native Apple platform developers, so you wouldn't use it to disassemble a .NET application or something like that. Nice. Appreciate the correction on that. I apologize to the author of Hopper. <laughs> well, I'm just impressed that somebody's actually shipping a, a not not just a GNU Step app, but a commercial GNU Step app that you have to pay for. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, actually, uh, the the author he he has some pretty cool uh, anti-debugging countermeasures in Hopper. I, I uh, one day I just need to really sit down and figure out exactly what's happening in there. But uh, if you ever try and open Hopper in Hopper, you'll be um, slightly amused by the what's happening in there. Strings are hidden. He's uh, calling uh, ptrace, um, or, sorry, let me back up. Uh, he's calling a system call which disables debugging and does it in a way where um, it's kind of hidden from uh, normal measures of snooping. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really well written. And I definitely need to look at that because I, you know, there's a lot of anti-debugging measures out there. There's um, you know, like iTunes has one where they, they check if um, uh, a debugger is attached and they'll call it exit if that's the case. But um, Hopper is definitely a good, a good case study in anti-debugging measures. Sorry, that was a rant, but. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's well done. Okay, so if you're a, a, you know, an average iOS Mac developer and, you know, you're okay with the Xcode, you're okay with doing print statements or whatever, like, at what point should you look into some of these other tools? Like, what, when, when does it make sense to bring out the big guns? I would say assembly is sort of like the gateway drug because it's, um, you know, you can, using a li just a little bit of knowledge of assembly, you can really quickly monitor um, a lot of stuff that's happening in private frameworks and source code that you do not have. So uh, I, think, I think just, you know, learning a tiny bit of assembly might spark a curiosity in some listeners. Uh, there's there's not a lot of good ARM64 documentation on assembly. There's quite a bit on x86-64, but um, you know, actually, I could um, uh, give a couple links for some of my preferred ARM64 um, quick tutorials. But um, there's not a lot out there. But uh, I feel like if learning assembly might be the good first step in uh, pulling out the big guns for just just learning that and just um, getting interested in this kind of stuff. That's the exact talk that I'm giving at TriSwift. Uh, I'm so excited to hear that. <laughs> so by the by, the time our listener by the time our listeners hear this show, I think I probably will have already given it. I'm not I'm not sure where we're at schedule wise, but uh, yeah, it's it's basically like, hey, you're all scared of assembly right now. I promise it's not so scary. Let's learn a little bit, and I think you'll see how um, how useful it can be, even if you only learn a little bit. So in 20 minutes, what can you teach students? So uh, we, we're, I'm going to run through sort of what is assembly, the idea that it's a, as close to a one-to-one -one mapping to the machine code that the CPU is actually running as, as you can get and still sort of be human accessible. Um, we're going to talk about what registers are, what instructions are, how they look in assembly, you know, what, what assembly syntax is like. Uh, we're going to go through, um, we're going to talk about calling convention and just sort of what that means uh, and then talk about how um, 
break down a really simple function. It, it's, it just adds two numbers together uh, and understand how that works in assembly, which is, you know, you don't need to know very many instructions um, to do that. It's basically a, some move instructions and, and, and an add instruction. And then we will talk about how knowing all of that, uh, you can use LLDB to, um, you know, for example, put a breakpoint on a system method and then uh, inspect it, the arguments to that method, even though you're staring at a big wall of assembly in, in Xcode. So, um, I mean, you do something similar in the book with, I think, mouse down. Uh, I'm, I'm doing it more in the context of iOS, but th that's sort of the idea. Um, just that, you know, we don't have the source code to Apple's frameworks, but but we actually kind of do in, in in the sense that we have assembly, which is what the CPU is actually running. Um, and if, if you know a little bit about that, you actually can find out about what's going on. Nice. Yeah, it's um, it's really cool because like, uh, sorry, I'm jumping a little bit, but um, so from your standpoint, you know, the usual RDI, RSI, RDX, RCX, R8, R9. Um, but in Swift, they've actually changed it around a tiny bit. So everything that applies to C and Objective-C and even C++ on a pure Swift uh, function, I think they changed the, the, the reference to self is actually R13. So let's say I'm in, I'm in uh, yeah, it, it threw me off. That's actually why they, they have those uh, bridging methods from um, uh, Objective-C land to kind of Swift is, what it's doing is it's changing around all the registers and, uh, uh, and, it's, and it's retaining, you know, the things that do need to be retained. So, uh, so a concrete example would be, um, let me think. Okay. So I'll, I'll just say, uh, you know, view to load. That's always my go-to in the, the book was, um, you know, view to load turns into objective C message send, you know, RDI is going to be self RSI, the view to load selector, nothing else for the parameters. Now in Swift, like let's say in that code, you were calling a non-objective C method. So something that's like, um, you know, it doesn't have that prepend objective C to that function declaration. Uh, what it'll do is it'll take the RDI, send it to R13 and move all the other registers. So, you know, uh, argument one in objective C land would be RDX that would get moved to RDI, uh, which is interesting. They, they say it's for you know, speed optimizations because uh, R13 will survive uh, the stack frame, you know, getting called out of a function, RDI will not. Um, so that's apparently uh, a speed boost, quote unquote, but it, you know, in practice it doesn't seem like that because nothing else implements that except for Swift. So Interesting. So um, what Derek's talking about for our listeners here is that when a function is called uh, in assembly, there's there's a convention that is set up called the calling convention, where the calling code puts the the function's arguments in certain registers, and then when the function itself runs, it just knows where its arguments are because it knows where they're supposed to be by convention. And the the first argument to a function uh, for C and Objective C um, goes in RDI on on Unix platforms anyway. And uh, in Objective-C, every Objective-C method is really, at the end of the day, is a function that has two arguments that you don't normally see. The first one is, is self, and the second one is the selector that caused the method to be called. Um, and so 
self goes in RDI, but I, I didn't realize they had switched that around uh, with Swift. Um, I take it that was a later change, not something that was there in earlier versions of Swift. Yes, that was actually why um, uh, I had to keep on changing around the assembly chapters in the book just because of this exact thing. They used to follow the RDI, uh, RSI convention, but then they switched it up. Uh, I'm not exa exactly sure when, but it seemed like, I don't know, between three and four, they started doing that. So uh, yes, I've had to change it, uh, the chapters in that book, because uh, the ABI has not stabilized and I am very excited about it stabilizing so I could finally not have to rewrite those chapters again and again and again. Well, that's that's interesting too because I think a lot of Swift developers hear this idea of ABI stability and they don't really know, you know, what what does that really mean exactly? It stands for Application Binary Interface, um, but that's that's a part of ABI stability, right? Is calling convention. It's if I call a function in this library, this module over here from this new program I'm writing, is are those functions going to be expecting their arguments to be in the place that the compiler is putting them when it compiles my code? And if that's changed between versions, things don't work, right? Yep, that's exactly it. So the, the whole selling point of ABI stability is, let's say I have a framework that has the exact same functions. Uh, I can ship a framework compiled today compared to one, you know, three years from now. And hopefully the, sort, or the, the, the assembly will still work just fine, provided that, um, well, the assembly will work just fine, uh, provided that the functions do you know the exact same thing. Okay, I think we're probably the first podcast in history to actually talk about assembly language in detail. I'm sorry, <laughs> spell I'm out. really sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing, and I love it. Uh, but as someone who hasn't done assembly in a long time, and what I did learn was x86, uh, please put some notes in the some of the links you talked about in the show notes, so our listeners can can, can read along. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool stuff, and you can do a lot with it. Um, but yeah, you need, might need a little help. Yeah, and I, but I, I think seriously, if you want to get into this uh, in more depth, Derek actually has a tutorial on the Ray Wender website that's free that um, goes into some of this. And then really you should just buy his book because for an iOS developer or a Mac developer, somebody who uses Xcode and you know works on those platforms, it's the best way I can think of to to learn this stuff. A lot of the resources you'll find are you know, they talk about x86-64 assembly language, but they're certainly not in any, you know, iOS or Mac specific context because that assembly is the same, you know, whether you're on Mac or Linux or uh, for that matter, Windows. Although I think the calling convention is different on Windows. But anyway, definitely like you're, you're I'm an iOS developer. I want to learn assembly. I'm not sure there's a better reference than what Derek's written. And I'm not saying that just because he's on the show today. Well, I'm honored. I'm so grateful. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That makes me really happy. Um, I, one of the things I was going to ask that I'm curious about uh, that you touched on a little bit, but, but I guess I, I don't have any context for is uh, what is your day job? What do you do? Uh, I actually just quit. Uh, so store, sort of just, you know, taking it easy right now enjoying the, uh, my, my uh, season ski pass, but um, yeah, I'll be looking for a job uh, probably in a month or so, but um, yeah, so I am jobless right now. It is great. <laughs> okay, well that thwarts me a little bit. My next question <laughs> is going to be is my next question was going to be like how do you use these things in your day-to-day -day job? If you're just an iOS developer, I you know, I've been doing Cocoa development for 15 years and Dave the same and James for a long time too. 
And, you know, I've gotten along without knowing assembly uh, for, for most of that. And without, without knowing lots of sophisticated LLDB stuff and how to use the, the Python scripting facility in LLDB. Um, what is it that you do as, a, as an iOS developer or a Mac developer that uh, you are able to do better because you know all this stuff so well? I would say um, just miscellaneous bugs and being able to walk up to a code base and be able to understand it, uh, hopefully at a slightly faster rate. Um, you know, just, just for the, you know, the detrace scripts that I'll make to, you know, trace stuff. Or uh, let's say I have a um, uh, retain count that's too high, that's not being deallocated. I'll use one of my custom LLDB scripts to um, search for all references of a certain class. And then I could, you know, search for all references pointing to a reference um, to you know anything and that's actually I, I find that to be way faster for finding retain cycles than using the Xcode UI for that kind of stuff um, you know I, I it just really helps in speeding up the learning process I would say just for you know walking up to code bases and seeing what's up with them you uh, mentioned earlier that you do almost all of this sort of debugging in terminal or the console directly um, what do you find lacking in Xcode and what would you want to see added to Xcode itself to make debugging easier in the app UI? Okay, I'm gonna answer this, but I'm gonna say Chris Miles, this is directly for you, is uh, I would really like to see some uh, color output in my console. Um, that, that's, that's a huge thing for me. I know it's not a big thing, but it's a huge thing to me. <laughs> so, and what about you? I'm not yeah, I, I, I got low standards, so I'm, I'm happy with, um, I'm really happy with Xcode. I know, I know everyone kind of craps on it on Twitter and all that, but um, you know, I, it's a great tool. I love it. Uh, there's just small things here and there that could be better. Also BIM, but that's maybe farther down the line. What about you? I mean, uh, of anything that you could want to be better, what, what would you want? Um, there, there are a couple specific areas I would like to see improved. Um, I find the uh, the diagnostics options in the scheme editor to be pretty lacking. Um, uh, there, it's it's not very clear why things are in there versus things that are excluded that you have to specify versus, uh, in environment variables. Um, so I'd really like to see the the diagnostics uh, pane of the scheme editor become a lot more powerful. I think it'd even be cool if uh, individual frameworks or subsystems of the of the OS could dynamically specify uh, options to include in the diagnostics editor. Uh, in the diagnostics editor, because um, you know, through reverse engineering AppKit, for example, I've discovered a couple uh, environment variables that you can turn on in order to do things. For example, like uh, tracking why specific NS menu items are and are not enabling. Um, and I would love to just have a checkbox for that somewhere. Um, I would also love to see a lot more control over the OS log output um, and being able to dynamically turn on and off different uh, subsystems that are logging just to like control some of the log spew that, that shows up in the console. Um, those, those are a couple really big ones for me. The other really giant one that it kind of blows my mind that it, it doesn't exist is I wish I could have an LLDB init file 
at the project level. Um, so that like, if I'm working on a specific project that I know is, has certain kinds of problems, I would love to be able to uh, have an LLDB init file for that repository and then have LLDB recognize and load that file when the console starts, uh, starts up. Because um, right now, LLDB only loads your, uh, your user level file, um, which, you know, that's fine. I have things in mind, but I, I think there's a, a case to be made for project-specific debugging tools. That is a really good idea. I, I might steal that and make that into a script that looks in the current directory for your Xcode project. Sorry, I'm totally stealing that idea. I really like that. No, no worries. Uh, there was a uh, there's been a recent thread on the the Swift forums about a uh, you know a style, an official style or a recommended style, um, and this is one of the things that I brought up is that if we are going to have a, a style for Swift, Swift, you know, please let me override it at various levels and let's not repeat the mistakes that LLDB has made. Actually, speaking of stalking, I saw your. Um, uh, I'm jumping again. I apologize. I saw your Twitter thing on add this to your LLDB init, the command regex, objective C. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Yeah, that was a, a, a command born out of extreme fr frustration of PO never quite doing what I wanted, uh, especially when I'm in Swift code. Um, so for, for users who are uh, not familiar with uh, what we're talking about, I tweeted a, a little while ago about a command I have in my LLDB init file, and it adds a command to LLDB called obc. Um, and basically what this command does is it takes anything that I write after obc and executes it as an Objective-C expression. So even if I'm in the middle of debugging a, uh, a Swift code and I'm, I have Swift symbols and everything, I can still execute uh, pure Objective-C expressions in uh, the LLDB console. Um, without having to go through the full expression syntax. It's really handy, especially when I've just got raw pointer values that I need to start digging through. Do you have a uh, repo of any other cool LLDB commands? Um, I, I only have a couple other commands in my LLDB init. Um, I have one to print the recursive description of a view hierarchy. Um, and then another one to print the view controller hierarchy and then this obc command. And that's about it. Um, I am very interested in the sort of uh, scripts and commands that, that you've developed, Derek. And one of the questions I actually wanted to ask you is, have you considered uh, trying to contribute any of these back to the LLDB project uh, for inclusion? I have thought about fixing up the heap.py command. Um, I just, I need free time. <laughs> but yes, it, it has crossed my mind before. I, I would love to fix that thing up because uh, let me explain why. Um, so again, heap.py, it's a command that's on all our Macs. Um, but each time a new version of LLDB comes out, they embed a different uh, claim, claim um, uh, version of Clang into LLDB. So that's responsible for generating the code when you PO something. So each version of this Clang will, you know, give me different errors or warnings or whatever. And so this is why it's kind of hasn't worked as of late. Um, and I, one day, maybe, maybe, maybe this will actually get me to contribute to it. 
is uh, you know, the, the current version of Clang uh, compiled with LLDB just doesn't work, doesn't play nice with that, that heap.py script. So maybe in a month. I mean, I think you just quit your job, right? Yeah, that's true. But there's always, you know, you've got to relearn all the, you know, the merge sort and all that fun stuff. So oh, yeah, that's, true. that's, that's like a job in itself, at least for me. So, um, but yes, I, I do find these scripts way more interesting when I'm setting for sorting algorithms. Isn't that a shame? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I think that's just anything with life, right? Or that weird stuff becomes way more interesting when you don't want to do something, but. I mean, it's certainly that way for me. When do I want to bust open Hopper and find out something about the Objective-C runtime? Uh, well, probably when I'm supposed to be getting something else done. You know? Just earlier today, I opened up AppKit in Hopper. Somebody had asked a question on a forum of when did NS text view start allowing weak references to it? Uh, and I was looking through uh, AppKit to see if I could figure it out. Because I know that there are some, uh, some methods that uh, the uh, memory management system will consult, uh, but I ended up not being able to find anything. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I mean, 10, in 10.7, when ARC was introduced, I know it wasn't, and I yeah, I can't remember if it was already by 10.8. It seems like they, they fixed most of those really quickly. It, it, it was uh, 10.12, where you could start forming weak references to text view. Oh, wow. So that's later than I thought. Yeah, quite. I late. mean, some of them, like NS view controller was one of them in, in 10.7, and they... Yeah fix that pretty quick. But. All right. Well, uh, is there, is there anything else about this whole debugging thing? I mean, one thing that I would have loved to talk about that we didn't, didn't at all is, um, some of the tracing tools, uh, P trace and, and D trace, uh, slash instruments. Um, maybe we'll have to have you back, but those are also super useful things that I think a lot of iOS developers don't, um, dig into as much as they could. Yeah, it's, it's, I think the bar to entry is kind of, pretty high. So I, I think that like turns a lot of people off for this kind of stuff. So, I mean, even with the, with LLDB in general and the scripting with Python, it's the documentation isn't great. And you know, that's, that's partially why the book is out just to shed some light on that. So hopefully, um, hopefully people find that book or, you know, D-Trace interesting and explore more. <laughs> okay. Well, should we get to picks? Sure. I'm realizing Derek that we may not have uh, given you a heads up. Um, so you have a few minutes to come up with a pick, which is just a recommendation. It could be anything you want to our listeners, but I will start with Dave because he said, sure. So I think he's got a pick for us. Uh, I actually have two picks. Um, the first one, and they're, they're quite related. Um, the first one is actually, uh, it's a little bit of a story. Um, I used to work on the UI kit framework at Apple. And one of the things that I had to do there was debug other people's apps. Because um, as you're developing a, a new version of UIKit, you need to make sure you don't break existing apps. And uh, part of this meant that I had to go digging around inside other people's apps to see what they were doing with UIKit and uh, how they were, were using or misusing the API. And while I was on the UIKit team, I ended up uh, writing a couple of NS object methods um, that got shipped in the SDK. Um, so if you are writing an iOS app and you need help debugging your apps, there are a couple methods that exist on every NS object. Um, the first one is called underscore IVAR description. Uh, when you invoke IVAR description on a class or a pointer, 
Um, it uses the Objective-C runtime to look up every instance variable on this object and what its value is, and will print out a little description of the value. Um, the second method is very much like it. It is called underscore method description. Um, and it will also dump out a list of every method and property on this object. Um, this can be a really nice way to figure out what data uh, an object is holding and what it is expecting to be able to do with that information. So that's my first pick, uh, the underscore IVAR description and underscore method description uh, methods on all NS objects in iOS. Um, the second is pretty similar to it. Um, it is the tool class dump. Um, class dump is a really nice tool that where if you have an Objective-C app, uh, you can run class dump on this app and it will read the, the Objective-C symbol information and generate headers for all of the classes and protocols used within an app. Uh, so if you're wondering how an app is written, Class Dump can give you a really great start on figuring that out. Yeah, Class Dump was at the heart of that analysis I did and blogged about a couple weeks ago about how many apps are using Swift out of the top 100. I mean, I basically just class dumped them and used the uh, names to figure out if they were Swift or Objective-C classes. I also use Class Dump occasionally to see if somebody is using my um, open source library code without putting the proper attribution in their app. That's really cool because I, I remember seeing that article, but I didn't know it was you who wrote it. So it's a, it's a small world. Yeah, it was me. It was my 15 seconds of fame. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, James, do you have any picks for us? I think he might have left. He did leave. Oh, I, I scared him off. Attention. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, no picks from James this week. <laughs> um, Derek, do you have a pick for us? Okay. Uh... I guess since it's on my mind, I'm going to try and up Dave. Um, in my LLDB repo, the, um, I have shortcuts for those um, uh, methods that he listed. So uh, you could do IVARs, um, which will execute the IVAR description, or methods, which will execute, um, I think it's underscore short method description. You see it. I think the method description does all the uh, methods all the way up to its parent NS object class. So I, I just only do that for the class. And I also have a command called D class, which is kind of a poor man's class dump uh, and also works sort of well on Swift. I need to fix that one up. So I will write that here in the zoom thingy. Very cool. Yep. All right. Well, I am going to pick, uh, I'm, I'm headed to Japan for try Swift in two weeks as is Dave. And I can't really think about anything else. So I am going to pick a ramen restaurant in uh, in Tokyo. It's called Afudi, and it's in Harajuku, and it has vegan ramen. My wife's vegetarian, and it's pretty hard to find vegetarian food in Japan. Uh, but it has delicious um, vegan and non-vegan ramen. And I am excited to go there in two weeks when I'm in Tokyo again. So if you happen to be in Japan for Try Swift or you live there, check it out. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, Derek. It was great to talk to you. I had, I had um, kind of not made the connection between you and the book until I saw that you were on our list to be a guest, and I was very happy to be able to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. It was an honor being here. Yeah, All right. We're joining us. See everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.